ora, koa and O'Brien tuku ingoa, he kaurungi o Waituhi o Tamaki, no mai haere mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2022 event. We hope you enjoy it. Harbouring. From the pen of historical fiction doyen Jenny Patrick, one of this country's best-selling novelists with books including The Deniston Rose and Heart of Coal, comes this year's Harbouring. The story begins in 1839 as Welsh foundry worker Hugh Pengallon embarks with his family on a journey of hope, enticed by Colonel Wakefield's plans to take settlers to the distant shores of New Zealand. On the other side of the world, Hiniroa yearns for escape from servitude and to be reunited with her people. Their entwined lives chart a changing landscape of colonial Wellington, political, social and geographical, in another feat of masterful storytelling. She discusses her writing and research revelations with author and journalist Nikki Pellegrino. Ena mana, ena reo, ena iwi, tena koto katoa. Ko Nikki Pellegrino, toko ingoa, tena koto katoa. Hello everybody, welcome to this session today with the wonderful Jenny Patrick. I'm really excited to be here. First event in a long time for me, so this is particularly Fabulous. A um, few things. First of all, please don't have your phone on. Um, while the festival's very happy for you to do social media saying how great it is, please do so with all the consideration to the fellow audience members around you. And for the same reason, please could you wear a mask if possible, because none of us want to get sick. But if you do feel at all sick, feel free to leave. Um, so we're just going to chat, have a very informal, nice, happy chat with Jenny. And then there'll be 10 minutes at the end for questions. And the lights will come up, I think. And there's microphones around. So I'm sure there'll be stuff I have failed to ask and you will want to ask her. Um, and so feel free to do that. Jenny Patrick is one of New Zealand's best loved and most read novelists. Her debut novel, The Deniston Rose, and its sequel, Heart of Coal, have sold tens of thousands of copies, I think 100,000. Um, Jenny's written 10 novels, the latest of which is a historical story harboring about the colonization of Wellington. And she had other careers before she came to fiction writing. She's worked as a teacher, a contemporary jeweler, and an arts administrator. Now 86, she is a remarkable woman and a natural storyteller. And even though she has suggested that Harboring might be her last novel, I think all of us are hoping that is not the case. So Jenny, I've seen you described as a, as a late starter as a writer because you didn't start publishing novels until your 60s. But you were writing before that, weren't you? And I, I was, yes. I wondered if you'd tell us a bit about how you started, when you started writing. Well, I think um, I've always been writing, even from being a, a, a little child, in fact. I remember one time um, when I was maybe in standard four, whatever, you know, I was about 10, and there was, uh, in our class, there was a competition for who could write the best story, and I desperately wanted to win it. And so what I did was I, I had a book at home called Lawson Wood's Merry Monkeys, and I copied a story out of it. <laughs> And I thought, 
this book is Australian and nobody will know it in New Zealand and my teachers won't guess, but of course they did and uh, I was labelled a cheat forever after that one. <laughs> that was my, but, but I've always written um, or wanted to write stories. Uh, at school I did and, but more of it was in non-fiction actually. Uh, I wrote for radio in the early days. There was a, um, a, pro a, a program called um, Looking at Ourselves where you had to pick stories out of the news of that year, of that week, and do it for radio. I did that for a long time. And when I lived in Samoa, when I, was, I had two young babies and was living there for two years, I sent back to Radio New Zealand um, a fortnightly newsletter I wrote a lot for radio in the early days, and I have a feeling that, that was, that's good for writing fiction or writing books, because it gives you, when I'm, when I'm writing now for um, something that I hope will come out in a book, I'm hearing it, I'm talking it at the same time, and I think that is, has been a useful thing for me. So do you think it gives you more sense of the rhythm of the sentence? Yes, I do. I do think that. And I think also the fact that I grew up with a um, uh, theatrical family, both my parents were actors and directors and our family, and I was very involved in theatre when I was young. And when I write, I always imagine the scene. I'm in the scene and I can see it and I think that's part of the theatre side of it. Well, you have to be able to imagine if you're going to be a fiction writer, don't you think? So, but you're very visual then. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, I, I am visual, and um, the fact that I was a... I mean, my, I've had a longer career as a jeweller than I have as a writer. Well, it must be getting close now. <laughs> <laughs> I think now I come to think of it. But, uh, yes, I, th I am... I am a visual writer, yeah. You said you lived in Samoa for two years. What were you doing there? Well, it, with my first marriage, I trained as a teacher and my first husband did too. And in those days, you hit a salary bar if you didn't do country service. And Samoa counted as country service for teachers. So we thought, good idea. So off we went and that was a lovely two years um, and a very, I mean, it sort of informed one of my novels because um, uh, Inheritance is based partly in Samoa. Because I still have these faded carbon copies of all those newsletters, that's like the research done. So <laughs> I, I set the novel in, um, in the 1960s, which is when I was there, which was an interesting time because Samoa had just become independent and there were political things going on. So it was an interesting time. So is that what you wrote about in the, news, the newsletter? The newsletter that you wrote for Radio New Zealand, was that about yes. newsy things or life, about your life? What did you write about? I don't, I don't write about my life. Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Yes. Um, in fact, uh, I, I tend to make sure I don't write about my life, um, except for one of my novels. But 
I, I remember when I was early on in trying to, after I had decided to try to be a, a fiction writer, I went to a session a bit like this in Wellington um, when, when Wellington did the best writers' festivals, alas, no longer. Um, and Annie Prue was there in a, in a panel, and she said in her growly voice, don't write about what you know, write about what you don't know. And um, I had been writing about what I, about a family sort of thing, and I thought, and I was unhappy with it, so I dropped that, and I thought, right, I'll, I'd been up to visit Deniston a while ago, and I thought, I don't know anything about Denston except having visited. I'll write about what I don't know. And that's tended to be what I've done. And I, it, it turns out I love to research, and so that's... What made you want to write a novel and also think you could do it? Well, I don't know what made me want to. <laughs> I just, well, I was, I'd been a jeweller and had quite a good career in that, and then I was, um, for a while, I was uh, chair of the board of the Creative New Zealand, it's called now the Arts Council, and so that was almost like a full-time job for me. And um, so I wasn't making jewellery and I'd lost some of my clients and that sort of thing. Also, my hands were getting arthritic and I thought I'll try something else. And because I'd always enjoyed writing and I love reading, I've been a compulsive reader all my life, I thought I'd give it a go and see if I could get into Bill Manhire's creative writing course, which had just started in those days. I mean, it's a huge... Now it's a huge department in the university, but in those days it was just 12 people picked by what you wrote. You, we just had to send something in and Bill chose 12 people and some of them were at university, some were already graduates like me and, you know, we're all different. And that really got me going. Once I got picked by Bill Manhai, I thought, well, I'm going to be God's gift to New Zealand writing now. <laughs> and of course, it didn't happen that way. Didn't happen. Um, Deniston Rose, it got um, turned down by the first two publishers I sent it to, and I rewrote and rewrote. I mean, there's a long story I've told it many times. You probably don't want to hear it again, but it was, it took six years from the time I um, first. Uh, offered Deniston Rose to someone, to a publisher, before it got published. And even then, Random House um, thought they were taking a real punt on it. They thought they had never published New Zealand historical fiction before, and they thought nobody was much going to want to uh, read it. I was lucky, you see. And by the time it hit the shelves, bookshelves on the shops, it had been republished five times because there was a great take-up, there, there was a great interest in our own stories. So I hit the bucket right at the right moment. Well, you were the pioneer, really, because you paved the way for other people to get historical. Well, if I was, I'm very pleased because, yes, and you see a lot of 
really good historical fiction being written now, and uh, I think I was paving the way a bit, and it was just by accident. I wasn't thinking I'm writing historical fiction. I was just writing about Denniston in the old days. You know, it was I wasn't. I'm not that keen on genres and boxes and all that. Yeah, <laughs> publishers love genres and boxes, but you you were just writing the story. I was just writing a story, and I suppose then I got hooked on the. I was lucky in that when I offered Denston Rose to the publishers, Harriet Allen, who's my publisher, said, well, this is too long for a first novel. What say you end it? Da-di-da. And this was exactly where I had ended it before, all my rewriting and da-da-da. And she said, and what say your shorter second half, you turn that into a sequel? And so that was wonderful two novels, you know. And that really set me off into the historical area and I found that I loved researching and I got, I have written two or three novels that are not historical, but I have written pretty well. To me, the research for a historical novel seems daunting. I write novels and mostly my research just involves going to Italy and eating too much. <laughs> You must do a tremendous um, amount of work, and I wondered if you could tell us a bit about the process. Say, with harbouring, where do you start? Well, when I started with the early novels, um, there wasn't so much online, and I would go down to the National Library. I'm lucky enough to live in Wellington, and I would um, pore over, in particular, the huge collection of old photographs, and I was lucky there in that Deniston was a famous piece of um, engineering, so there were a lot of photographs of it. But if you're writing about what happens in the old days, you need to know very well what clothes they are wearing, whether they're wearing a pipe, whether they're smoking a pipe or have cigarettes come in yet, how their clothes are worn, what sort of ground they're walking on, all those kind of details that you need to put into the old times. And also, when I look back at the, the stories, the, the different novels, I realize that there's something that's a little bit common to them in that I love, I always have loved the way things work. It's part of being a jeweler, I think. I love, uh, as a child, I used to take clocks to, to pieces and put them back together and things like that. And so a lot of my novels have got, like the Denston Rose, I was interested in how they got the coal up and down. The actual, I watched these old photographs and old movies of how they got the coal out of the bins and into the, the whole detail. And a, a bit like uh, Leap of Faith, another novel, how they built those great viaducts in the um, Central Plateau. I was interested in that intricacy. And the landings one, how on earth they got those early riverboats, steamers, up through the Wanganui River when they had to get up through 120 or 150 rapids. And the whole engineering of that has always been interested, interesting to me. 
So how long does that process take, all the reading and the learning? It takes about, um, well, of course, Denston Rose was different, but once I was on my way, um, about two years. I would start with a year of research and then um, start writing. And then once I had my characters, I mean, with the research, I'd say, oh, that was an interesting event. I'll have that. And that was an interesting event. So I'd pick and choose the interesting events and then make sure I had my strong characters. And then another year in the writing. But I do like to make sure that I know, have seen with my own eyes, the places that I write about. So that was a bit of a problem with uh, Catching the Current, which is set, a, la a large part of it is set in the Faroe Islands, which is a little group, a handful of islands in the middle of the um, Atlantic, just south of Iceland, and just a bit north of the most northern Ireland. Scot um, Scottish islands. So I wrote it by research and then I thought, I've got to go there, we've got to go there. So Lawton and I, um, well, I, I looked it up and I saw that there was, a f there was a Faroese tourist board and I sent a letter to them in English and I thought, I don't even know whether anyone speaks English over there. Next day, a, a reply came back from John Esteroy, and he said, I'm, I'm part of the uh, Faroese tourist. Come over, give me a list of all the things you want to see. I'll take a week off and take you all round. Wow. And that was wonderful. Invaluable. Invaluable, yeah. yes, yes. Um, not all your books have been historical, and in fact, one of my favourites, In Touch With Grace, oh, is, yes. uh, was at the time a contemporary novel. And it's a story, a, a love story about two elderly people. And yes. I wondered if you'd tell us a bit about where the idea and inspiration... Well, that was... Uh, in Touch With Grace started, um, started as, a radio, as a radio series. It was the first thing I wrote after the Bill Manhart course, actually. And um, it's really based on my mother's life. After my mum died, she had a lovely relationship with um, a f a, an old family friend who, whose wife had died, and that both of them were deaf as posts, and uh, they often got things wrong in communicating. And that what gave me the idea that a lot of, a lot of In Touch With Grace is letters, because my two characters, Grace and Max, um, communicated by letters rather than phone, because they couldn't hear each other on the phone. And that's, that novel is kind of the closest, I suppose, to what might be called a memoir, because just about everything that happens in that, I mean, there's a scene in, at drama school where my husband Lawton taught and I was chair of the board there, and there's a scene where um, Grace gets arrested in the Springbok tour and actually, Lawton and I and my old mum, we all got arrested on the airport um, and spent the night in prison. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> yes. We, it's a funny story, can I tell it? Yes. yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's there in the book, but it's Grace, it happens to Grace, but we were, we were on, the, um, on a march and 
the usual march, and my daughter was with us, and mum and Lawton and me, and it was my daughter's birthday, and she was having a, a teenage party that night, and so when um, the word came round the march, uh, do, does anyone want to go and protest at the airport? Lawton and Mum and I thought we would, and Lynn said, no, I think I won't because I'm having my party tonight. And we had told her she could only have the party if we knew the names of all the teenagers who were coming and were there. But we got arrested, we got put in prison, and I was not allowed a phone call to tell Lynn I'm not there, you know, where am I, and so on. And we were, it was quite intimidating in a way because all us women were in one cell and all the men were in smaller cells down. And I remember one woman going to the door and calling out, Michael, are you there? Yes, Mum. Tony, are you there? Yes, Mum, and so on. It all came. And we'd left the car at the airport and I was worrying, how are we going to get there? Lawton had the keys and was in a cell down the road. Anyway, we got, um, I got out first and mum, and we were both thinking, how are we going to get anywhere? When we got out, there was a huge crowd on the street. My sister was there with blankets and coffee and <laughs> you know, and there were great cheers and all that, and so there was no problem. Lawton had, Lawton's hand had come out through the bars with the keys of the car, <laughs> and so I had the keys of the car. And when we, when finally, I mean about three o'clock in the morning, we got um, back up home, Lynn's party was still going, and I said, <laughs> I said, I'm so sorry, Lynn, you, you know, you must have been worried sick, and she said, no, Mum, we saw you being arrested on TV. <laughs> <laughs> and all that, a lot of that is, in, is in, in touch with Grace. Which is a fun novel. It's a light-hearted fun yes, novel. Yes, yes. Harbouring your latest novel is a lot darker in places. Yes. Um, it is obviously about the colonisation of Wellington and how the, city, the city's beginnings... Um, and Colonel Wakefield from the New Zealand Company who came over here and s with a big boat full of belongings that to swap with Māori for their land. But you chose to tell the story from the perspective of three ordinary people, Welsh immigrants, Hugh and Martha Pangallen, and a Māori woman, Hinaroa. And you were going to read us a short passage from the book now, aren't you? Yes, if that's all right. Yes. Usually, usually when you read something from a novel, it's right at the beginning to give a hook. Um, but in this case, I'm going to read something from right near the end. It won't, it won't be a spoiler. Um, and this is in the voice of Hinaroa. I write in three first persons, and so this was a bit of a challenge to write Hinaroa's voice. She is... Um, of the Muaupoko tribe, which is not a, one of the big tribes now, that was captured uh, and many of them killed and uh, decimated and enslaved by the Taranaki tribes coming down to Rauparaha. So she's lived a lot of her life um, as a slave, but she's very She's a very strong, intelligent woman and um, doesn't suffer fools gladly at all. 
uh, and has been made a, made a friendship with Hinaroa, with um, Martha and Hugh Pengillan. I'll just stand up to give you a change. After the many questions by the magistrate and the curious bystanders, native and Pākehā, Martha and Hugh and I were left in peace to live our lives. As my arm and my body healed, Martha and I would sit on the bench in front of Hugh's foray in Hill Street and talk. She's an unusual woman, Martha. I believe that learning to read has changed her. Also this life away from her own tribe back in Wales. She soaks up new thoughts like dry moss in wet weather. Why did you leave? I asked her. Did another tribe drive you out? She thought about this for a while. Maybe the English took away some of our land. I don't know if that's true or how it happened, but in Wales, the English are wealthy and we Welsh are mostly poor. They conquered you, perhaps. I think there were wars in the old days. Hugh says that one of, once the kings of England were Welsh. I suppose the English conquered us by wealth. They had more of everything than us. More guns? Oh yes. And everything else. More guns. As Terapraha and the Taranaki tribes conquered us. And, I said, as the settlers overcome us here by wealth. Greed, I would say. Whoops, two pages. She smiled. Do you think me greedy, Hine, to want a better life for my children? Not you, not you, Martha. The Wakefields, the company, the rich investors who came here to buy land and sell it at a profit, and who bring people like you to serve them. We often talk like this while Hugh is away surveying. He cannot sit at home for long. He loves to find unknown pathways through mountains or discover where rivers end up. Martha is the homemaker. One time I asked her, I don't understand how you could leave your family and come so far if there was no war to force you. She looked out over the harbor. It was a beautiful day when this conversation took place. No wind, clear sky. My parents were dead, she said. Hughes, too. But your hapu, your aunts and uncles, your cousins, you left them all. That seems strange to me. She sighed. Poor harvests, large families, the need for work. These were all driving us apart, scattering us to different places. No, it's more the land, I miss, our beautiful valley. We talk of Hirath, a longing for the place you call home. We would call it Turangawaiwai, the place where your feet belong. But you left it. Well, yes, we left it. This is where my heart lies now. She stood, smoothed down her apron. But now there is washing to be boiled. A practical woman, Martha, but strong too. She is the center of her small family and seems contented to have so few relatives in this land. That is strange to me. Later, when the washing was done and she was setting the stew over the fire for our dinner, she said, 
as if the conversation of the morning had been developing in her head all day. We were desperate, see, hungry. The roof over our head leaked. We were cold and very poor. Hugh had to work at something he hated. This was easier to understand. Oh, you were slaves like me. You were owned by, was it the English? She laughed, no, he nay, we weren't slaves. The factory boss was English, yes, but he didn't own us. We were free to go. I wanted to argue this point, but I'm learning to be more careful. Whoops. <laughs> My mother would approve. Go where, I wanted to say. You say you were desperate. You had nowhere to go. It seems to me that many laborers who arrive here are not free at all. They must work for the landowners or the company who have paid their passage. Does that not make them slaves? I suppose, like me, they believe they can free themselves in time, or at least give their children a chance. Thank you. So what made you decide to write from the perspective of these three fictional people, the Welsh couple and the Māori woman? Well, I quite like to... I've never done a whole book before, all in the first person. I've done bits. Um, I don't think I have. Um, but I like talking in other people's voices. Um, it gets your imagination going. It's a bit like acting, really. And uh, so I thought I would have these two people, the husband and wife, uh, who come to New Zealand in different circumstances. And then I thought, I can't, I must, I must have a Māori perspective. You have to, uh, in this case, uh, when you're writing about the very early times. I'm writing about 1839, 40, 41, when the first, it was the first mass arrival of settlers to New Zealand, and they came to Wellington. And it was important and would have been ridiculous to leave out the Māori perspective. So I decided to try and voice Hinuroa, which was a challenge. Yeah. And I was a bit worried about it and I thought maybe people will pull me up on it. Um, I did my homework. But then I thought I shouldn't be worried about it if, you, if you're writing characters, as you have to in fiction, you have to imagine yourself into the character that you're writing about. And we're all human, Māori, Welsh, Pākehā, whatever. We all have emotions. And if I couldn't put myself into the persona of a Māori woman, I would not be a good fiction writer, I thought. And um, so off I went. And uh, I, at the end of the, when I sent it up to the publishers, they said this should be, um, we should send it to a Māori um, somebody uh, who should read it for Māori sensitivities. And we did that. And he was quite complimentary. I mean, he, he, found, he found a mistake 
I don't, I don't think I've got time to tell you about the mistake, but anyway, um, I, it meant a lot of rewriting. But that wasn't because I hadn't done my research. It was a pure and lucky accident by his, in that case. And so I found it, I found it very um, rewarding in a way to try and imagine that. And it meant I had to do a lot of research into early Maori history, which was fun and good. And um, I hope I've got it right. I haven't had anyone so far come and tell me, you have no right to write in the words of a muau poko. Maybe they would have if I had said tainui or um, naitipuro or something like that. But anyway, so far I've got away with it. <laughs> <laughs> there is a dialogue around at the moment about story appropriation at the moment. And I wondered what you thought about it. Should a writer be free to tell any story, or should there be parameters? I think there should be parameters, yes. I find when I'm writing, um, I know other historical fiction writers are different from me, but when I'm writing, I, my main characters uh, in historical fiction are always um, imaginary people. I make up my own characters. I like to do that because then I can shape the story in the way that I want it to, so that it will have a natural rhythm, come to a climax at the right place just shortly before the end and so on. Um, and, and the real historical characters, and there are plenty of them in this book, are in the background more. I would not take uh, any... Um, I wouldn't write something that I didn't know actually did happen. Uh, I might put words into their mouths, but I would, it would have to be the sort of words they would say. And I, I admire people who, and there are plenty of them, who write historical fiction, um, biographical fiction, if you like, of the, of the person. But for me, it... it um, I like to make up a story, and so it, it doesn't leave me free enough to write a good, a good story. Does that answer what you're saying? So you, 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 you have feel that responsibility to historical characters, not to play fast and loose with yes, what really happens. Yes, I certainly wouldn't play fast and loose, although, um, I mean, uh, Colonel Wakefield doesn't come out very well in this book, <laughs> but he doesn't deserve to. And, uh, and uh, um, I think, I think what, uh, you see, with the area that I'm writing about now, the time and so on, there's been a lot of non-fiction written about it, a lot of uh, good scholarly work, and so that was a bit of a challenge to me to make up my own story. But there was plenty of good work already written about the characters of the real, the real historical characters in the book. Um, Harbouring brought another challenge for you because as you were writing it, your husband Lawton was very ill with motor neurone disease, which he had for a decade, didn't he? Yes. And I wondered how, that, how you managed to keep writing when he was so sick. I didn't... Well, I started... When the novel before this uh, was... He was sick by then, um, 
I wouldn't call it sick, disabled is how it is. His brain, his mind, his speech, all that was fine for the first five years. And I wrote a lot of that and he came with me um, in his wheelchair for quite a bit of that research. But then I started to write Harboring and it it as he became less and less able and needed more help and I had to be with him, uh, I couldn't, I wanted to spend the time with him rather than in the book. He'd, I did read the first um, several chapters to him. Uh, I'd never done that before. He wasn't allowed to read it till I'd finished. But in this case, um, because I thought he might not be there when I finished it, um, I read a chapter when I got it, and he, he was very encouraging. I'd say, what happens next, he would say, and I'd say, I don't know yet. <laughs> and the chair, so he, he heard the first chapters of it, and a bit like my mother, um, in, in touch with Grace, she was saying, what happens next? But then she, she died before the book came out. Um, she never got to read it then, that's Yes, sad. she never got to read it, no, or hear it on radio. But, um, so, there was in writing Harboring, there was quite a gap uh, between the first part of what I wrote, and then I just laid it aside and took it up again after he died. Uh, and even then, it took me a little while to get going, and I thought, oh, should I just give it away? Have I lost momentum? You know, it took a little while to get it going, but I'm reasonably happy with how it's turned out now. Lawton was a huge encourager of your work, and you, you wrote with him. You wrote children's shows. You did the lyrics yes. for songs. So how is it different now? Yes, it is. Um, he was, uh, because he was such a creative, and in fact influenced more people than I did, um, he was such a brilliant singing tutor. He taught um, at Toy Fukari singing and Teachers College singing, and so the people all over New Zealand who've been encouraged by him. And we wrote together, we wrote songs for children that all the schools that were published and all the schools sang them, and we wrote shows uh, that Capital E toured New Zealand with. I would write the words of the songs. Sometimes I wrote the show, and Lawton was always the music director and also did the music of it. So that is, I keep thinking when I say I'm not going to write anymore, I keep wondering whether I've lost that um, mojo from Lawton. But coming to the festival like this, it's, it's the first time I've done something like this. Um, uh, since he died, and I'm getting the feeling that maybe I do want to write again <laughs> after <laughs> Thank you. That's a nice encouragement. <laughs> have you got ideas bubbling? I have got ideas bubbling, yes. <laughs> and um, even something that's something that you said to me when we first met has. Um, made a change to what one of those ideas is. I won't tell you what, what it is. What did I say? No. <laughs> <laughs> Wait and see. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that sort of thing you need to... A writer is in isolation, you know. Um, 
I've got lots of friends, lots of family, but uh, you, you work in isolation. So uh, coming to a place like this, it's not only that I am performing, but I am also absorbing. Uh, I think that's really true that writers, it's a very isolated job, but you need to be in the world for ideas, and that was one of the difficult things about lockdowns, really, we disconnected so much. Yes. And for inspiration, it's talking to people and hearing things. Yes, yes, I agree. And, and of course, I, even before lockdown, I was much more isolated, I suppose, because Lawton couldn't go out, and unless every two months he would go into the hospice for five days, and that gave me five days that I could do what I liked in, but uh, otherwise, I'm not complaining about it because it was a lovely time to have him there and he was always with it and we en always enjoyed each other. Did, he taught me how to do cryptic crosswords and uh, it was amazing when, because um, he's always done them and I've always said, I can't do them. It's not, it's your thing, Lawton. And when he went for his afternoon sleep, I would cut out the cryptic crossword from the newspaper and it was clipped onto a board and hung onto the hoist that hung over his bed and he would look at lower, lower, yes, yes, that's right. And because he, he couldn't write by then, his hands couldn't. And he would do it all in his head and when he got up after lunch, he would tell me what the answers were. I had to write them down. And um, I would ask him, but why, what, you know, and so, after he died, I found the information had come in. Wow. And I can now do cross cryptic crosswords too. <laughs> I can't do cryptic crosswords to save my life, so yeah. Yes, well, I would have said that a couple of years ago. I would have said that, but I'm getting better at it. <laughs> Sorry, that's nothing to do with writing. <laughs> sort of is. Everyone does Wordle. Do you do Wordle? Everyone does Wordle now. Oh, yes, I do. I'm afraid I do do Wordle and Quordle, yes. But, <laughs> yes. I didn't do very well today. My mind wasn't on it. <laughs> do you ever wish you'd started writing fiction earlier, or do you think waiting until your 60s was, was a good thing to do? No, I don't. And I've never thought that. I've never... I know there are many of our great writers have um, written fiction all their lives, but um, I've really enjoyed doing the other careers. You know, I, was, I loved being a jeweller, and I've still got my jewellery bench, you know, but my hands aren't up to it, really. But, and I've, I've loved writing songs for children um, and with Lawton. And I think, I think maybe there was something good about uh, starting late because I've got all, that, all those 60 years earlier of experience and knowing people and talking to people and thinking enjoying life, um, to, which must inform me. And although I haven't read, written a memoir, I think a lot of the things that are important to me are in the various books or in the various characters that I write. So I've things that you're thinking about or...? Yes, yes, you can see a bit of me in a lot of the characters, in a row maybe, too outspoken. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Are you outspoken, do you think? Um, my children tell me I can tend to be a little bit um, 
not suffering fools gladly, <laughs> kind of. Well, I, try, I try to be good. Yeah. One of my teachers told me that I didn't suffer fools gladly. Oh, so really? Yeah. Yes, yes. Well, there you go. And we've got that in common. Yeah. Um, is writing something that comes easily to you, or do you, do you struggle with it when they actually get to the putting the words down part? Um, they come pretty easily, but I don't, I don't write quickly at all. Um, I write... I know some people, you know, just let it all pour out and then go back and um, tidy it up. I like it to be tidy as I write it. So when I'm sitting in front of my computer, I'll look out the window and, and uh, think of the right phrase or think of the right word. And I must admit, um, now that I'm older, I find it often harder to capture the right word. I know there's the right word for it, but what is it, where is it gone, you know? Um, so, it, writing doesn't come quite so easily to me as it did when I was younger, in my 60s or 70s, but um, I still enjoy it. I still enjoy it, and I've since, I mean, I should have another novel well on the way since Harboring's been out for half a year, and it went, I finished it a year before that, it usually takes about a year from the time you send it up and it's accepted to the time um, it hits the shops. So I should have another one on the... So that, obviously, writing is not coming quite so easily to me. Well, a novel is a, a massive project. I mean, even, yes, if you, even if you don't do the historical research and you choose to do something contemporary, yes. it's eighty to 100,000 words. It's a lot yes. of time. yes. Yes, I know. And to write 80,000 words, as you say, takes a lot of time. And, of course, when you're my age, everything else takes longer. <laughs> I take longer to get up in the morning and have my cup of tea in bed. And then it, by the time I'm dressed and showered and put my hearing aids in and so on, it's kind of morning tea time. <laughs> so it's... It's not quite so easy, and, and of course, I've got good friends, I've got family. I don't want to bury myself in, an, in writing a novel and not enjoy, in, at this stage in my life, my friends and family. So that, uh, that, perhaps that has been one of the things that is making me think, um, should I not do another novel? But then... I suppose I could do a short story. <laughs> <laughs> I have done those for radio, but there you go. And you're not going to tell us what your next book might be about? No, I'm not. No, <laughs> I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> but I don't think it will be historical. There's a clue. Okay. <laughs> That's good. What sort of books do you, do you love to read? You're a big reader still. Um, I love to read good, good, I suppose you would call it... Uh, the publishers would call it, um, what do they call fiction that is um, not classical? Um, contemporary? Uh, yes, good. No, well not necessarily contemporary, but ones that are, um, of, you see, I can't think of the word. I know it, I know it. But anyway, Harriet would tell me if she's there. But um, what, what um, when, when, it, 
my books are published under... Commercial um, or popular fiction? Hmm? Commercial fiction. Yes, I am, I am a popular, I'm classed as a popular fiction writer, and, and Black Swan publishes me, but the other people who write good, so-called good... Um, oh, literary. Literary, that's the word. Literary fiction um, are published in a different way. I like to read good literary fiction and was a bit shocked when I was told I was popular, not literary. <laughs> but I don't, uh, I don't like boxes. I think there's good writing and there's not so good writing. And you can find it in popular, you can find it in, in uh, literary too. I've but never been sure where the line Mm -hmm. is, I've never been sure where the line is drawn between what's no. popular fiction and what's not. No, literary. I've never been sure either. And um, I'm, I'm glad if I'm, cla uh, if I'm classified as popular, I'm glad that people, are, it means people read your books, and that's, that's good, as far as I'm concerned. Do you get lots of feedback from readers? Because you're so well loved. Do you, get, do you hear from lots of readers? Not a lot. Sometimes I do. Uh, I don't think it's all that common for people to actually but, uh, to write to you yeah. uh, and say, I've just loved this book. But I have had some feedback like that from Harboring. And I, well, I, I must say, if I read a book, I don't often write to the writer and say, that was a lovely book. You know, it seems almost like you're intruding. But when you do get something like that, uh, uh, feedback, it's very good. It's, it's lovely to get because you don't get any other kind of feedback except at a festival like this uh, or from your friends. Um, so I don't get a lot of that, but I love it when it comes. It's a funny thing, isn't it, sending your book out into the world to be read by strangers? Yes, yes. it is. Um, it's lovely. I mean, I love to think that somebody else is reading my story, and that was particularly wonderful when it started, you know, when Denston Rose came out, to think, somebody's reading my words. Wonderful feeling, and I still love it, and I know that what, what you might get out of harbouring is something, might be something quite different from what I got out of writing it, and and lots of people read in lots of different ways. And some people will say, oh, I love this part of it, or I love this part of it, or I hated this bit, you know. I had one woman uh, came to me at a book club and told me she hated Deniston Rose. And it was, wow. <laughs> and, and I thought, oh, why? And, and it was because she herself had had an awful experience in her life, I think she was, um, she might have been Jewish, um, and her parents, or she had been raped, or there was something like that, that was, um, it just, uh, she had to close it and put it away, you know. Well, that's also something that's important, maybe. That everybody brings their own life to yes, the book. Yes, everyone brings their own life yeah. to the book. Now, I think we might do some audience questions now. That would be nice to hear what you'd like to ask Jenny. So, are the lights coming up a bit? There are microphones. I'm as blind as I that. I need to so be I able to see, see you, though. <laughs> <laughs> we might need a bit more light. 
people, people backstage. There are microphones if you want to come to the microphones and hopefully the lights are going to come up in a minute and I'll be able to see you. And if you've got some questions, we would love to hear them. I can't really see anything, can you? No. <laughs> I can see a torch coming down the aisle. I can see aisle. a torch. <laughs> <laughs> Jenny. Hello, Jenny. Hello. Yes, hi. I've, I remember your family um, from the 1950s in Wesley Church. Oh, yes. And um, Drama Christie. Yes. And I believe you and Dinah were both Sunday school teachers. We were. Don't you tell were. me I taught you at Sunday school. Yes, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> And um, I just wanted to ask, I mean, of course, Drama Christie would have been a tremendous influence on you, but I wanted to ask what the Methodist Church might have meant to you I in was, your life. Yes, um, it was very important to me when I was young. My, uh, my parents uh, decided when I was 10 uh, that they were going to go back to the church. Um, we'd been brought up in a non-going-to-church family, and my mother had decided she would, um, she wanted to go to the Quakers, and, but Dad, who was a very extrovert man, went to one meeting of the Quakers and said, there's no way we're going there, we can't sing, we can't talk, <laughs> and so on. So we all went to Wesley Methodist, which was a very um, liberal church, and my mother wrote the Bible class lessons, and they both, my parents, started Drama Christi, which was an ecumenical drama group there, and Diana, my sister, and I. They were called Don and Tim Priestley, and uh, Diana, my sister, and I acted, and I directed for them too. And amazingly, I mean, mum stayed with that group till she died, and it's still going. To this day, you would be interested in. Uh, but I d I'm not uh, a churchgoer anymore, um, so that I value what I learned then, uh, especially that I met Lawton there, and um, we were both at Sunday school together. And um, but nowadays, I I'm not a churchgoer. If that answers your question, can you come to a microphone? There's one at the front, and there might be one just up behind you. Shall I ask a question here? At this yes. yes, brilliant. Yeah, um, I'm just um, so much enjoyed harboring. I think it's your um, most political and most um, courageous novel to date, and I really hope that there's going to be another one. So Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Now, I have a question. You actually mentioned Annie Perot, and I saw in Barkskins that she acknowledged you, and I wondered if you'd like to talk about that. Annie Perot? Yeah. Yes, well, she, um, we became, when she came to that festival that I talked about, um, we became friends, and we went, uh, Lawton and I went to visit her when she lived in the Medicine Bow Mountains, um, and she has, when she was researching for her big book, Barkskins, about trees, um, she came over and we helped her find trees to look at and go for. And uh, we still keep in touch by email. Um, so she's a good, f good friend of mine, uh, um, a very strong and 
Have I got time to tell a story? No, I won't tell that story. <laughs> but um, it's a funny one. Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so we are still in touch with each other, um, fr although from a big distance. She keeps moving houses from here to there to here to there, and I've been in the same house the whole time. But um, we, we have a lot to be in common with. Yeah. And you had a question here? Hello, I'm Christine. I haven't read all your books, but the ones I have read I've absolutely loved, and I'm really looking forward to reading Harboring because some of the main characters are Welsh, and my grandmother's grandfather, how many greats is that, was a Welsh immigrant oh, to New course, Zealand. Yeah. Yes. But interesting you've mentioned the Methodist Church. I think he'd be a good topic for a novel. He went to Fiji as one of the first Methodist missionaries on a sailing ship called the Charles Wesley. Right. And yeah. he was part of that first group of Christian missionaries mm. in Fiji. He kept a very detailed diary. Yes. And they were living there when there was still cannibalism mm. and women had to die if their husbands died and so on and describes all this, and the missionaries' children, the, the babies, were just dying. They couldn't cope with the tropical diseases and things. Yes. And after 10 years, he and his wife couldn't cope with it anymore and told the Methodist Church they wanted to move to New Zealand. And the Methodist Church regarded them, him as having abandoned his post, and he became a persona non grata. I and think he, <laughs> he returned to New Zealand without permission. I think you should write this novel. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, can I can tell you this, that uh, a lot of people uh, talk to me, and just as you have been, not really a question, is it, um, <laughs> that, uh, that tell me this would be a wonderful story for you to write about their own history back. I chose Welsh because I was, by total accident, and a lot uh, often I, I, things happen by accident, I was looking on television when I was looking for what characters for harbouring, and I saw it was a historical um, piece about conditions in the um, foundries in Wales about the time that I was talking about, wanted to talk about, and it showed a row of hutches that looked like pig pens that were where the foundry workers were living. And I, that, just seeing that picture gave me the idea, all right, I'll make my characters Welsh, although I do not have um, Welsh um, background. But I think in the... Um, in Denston Rose, I think my Methodist background was there because those coal miners were chapel people. They came from England and were chapel people and, it, it, and we did have a bit of church singing and that kind of thing in Denston. And we've got a couple more minutes if anybody else has a question. How long is your Annie Proust story? I'll tell the funny story. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell the funny story. Then um, this was at that same festival that I was talking to you about. Um, there was a wonderful fiction panel, and the, the four people on stage were Annie Proust, Carol Shields from Canada, Kate Grenville from Australia, 
and our own Kerry Hume. The four of them were talking about creative writing. And Annie Prue's novel that had just come out was Accordion Crimes. And it was, um, if you haven't read it, the main character is an accordion and it has passed each chapter it goes to a new um, owner and you sort of see the history of music that way. But the, at the end of each chapter, the current owner of the accordion comes to a very grisly and highly inventive death, a different death each time. <laughs> and um, at that time, um, um, Kerry Hume, we were all waiting for her second novel to come out uh, and it was to be, be called Bait. Uh, and she had, we'd, we had expected it to be out then. Still hasn't come out as far as I know. But um, anyway, um, she admitted that it, she was, it was slow coming out because her main character was a woman and she was very fond of this main character, but she knew this character had to die at the end and she couldn't really bear to do it. And Annie Prue leaned across, Orlando to me for the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Kerry ever did because I don't think the novel ever came out. <laughs> um, Jenny, thank you so much for sharing your stories with us today. J Jenny will be available at the book signing table to say hello to you and sign your books, and that's just out in the main foyer. Thank you all for coming. No reira, tenakoto, tenakoto, tenatato katoa. Thank you. Tenakwe. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2022 Auckland Writers' Festival Waituhi Otamaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website writersfestival.co.nz